You turn with me now to the New Testament and to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you that he will avenge him speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who exalts himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him, that that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All of these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you as those who must recognize that naturally we cannot see these things. We cannot know the truth about ourselves. We are blinded to our own sin We cannot know the truth about God. We cannot receive the gospel. We are blinded and inclined against it. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes and what is more, our hearts, that we might receive these things, that we might be brought to true conviction of our sin, and that we might come pleading for mercy from the one who is merciful and who alone can grant to us, enable us to come indeed to salvation through faith in Christ. 
Now we pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would be shown to be what you have declared it to be, to be powerful and sharp and able even to bring life to the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we come to the narrative of the rich young ruler in chapter 8, in verses 18 to 27. Now the context is extremely important, and it's very clear actually. It consists of these two previous sections in chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, found in verses 9 to 14, and then the narrative of the little children coming to Jesus in verses 15 to 17. The parable, if you remember, if you caught it as I was reading, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector was directed towards some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And it points to that all-important principle that there are two possible modes of approaching God, justice and mercy. The Pharisee came looking for justice from God because he thought he was righteous and expected to be affirmed and expected to receive on that basis justice. But he left no better than he came. But the tax collector came looking for mercy, and he received what he wanted. He went down to his house justified rather than the other. And now following that parable that that gives us that, that principle, these two modes of approaching God, then there are these two actual situations that illustrate each of the possibilities. One, we had, first of all, last week we had the helpless little children being brought to Christ in order that they might receive a blessing from him which they, they did nothing to earn, nothing to whatsoever to merit. Not only did Christ insist against the objection of his disciples on receiving them, but he also said, this is a picture. This is what, in fact, all of you must be like if you're going to receive the kingdom of God. This is the mode of mercy. And now we have the rich young ruler. He's no helpless, penniless little child, nor is he some wicked traitor like the the tax collector. He's strong. He is good. He has every advantage in life. And he has come looking for justice. But before we come to that, let me first say that the question that he asks, we must give our due to this man, The question he asked was a good one. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're going to speak about some details about that later, but just in general terms and broad categories, that is a really good question to ask. There is nothing more important in life than learning the way to eternal life. And to add it, to add to it, he had not come to some false teacher. He'd come to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he even seemed to come with a measure of humility Unlike some of those who came, you know, that came only to, to have some evidence against Jesus or to catch him at his words, he came with a measure of humility. So it's a promising start. Yet somehow, he goes away from this encounter with, with the Lord Jesus Christ, having asked a, a pretty good question, having come in some measure of humility, he comes away very sad. How could that be? Well, that's the question of this sermon, all right? The, the question, the title of the sermon is Why the Rich Young Ruler Left Side? Because it's really important for us to know the answer to that. Why is it 
that he left sad. So let us come humbly to Christ as our teacher this morning, and may we be granted a better outcome than this young man. So again, the title is Why the Rich Young Ruler Left Sad. And there are two points, each having two, two parts having two points, actually. There's the, the first part, which is about justice, and the second part, which is about mercy. And this first part has the, the points, firstly, highly qualified, secondly, but disqualified by sin. And then in the second part, the, the, the third point is it is impossible for man but fourthly, possible for God, right? So those four points in two parts. Now, the first part is justice. This is the justice mode we're dealing with. And as a preface to this first part, think again about the nature of the question that he's asking. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, there are these two modes, justice and mercy, and they relate to two covenants that God himself instituted. The covenant of works, the original covenant made with man, and it's never actually gone out of, of, of validity. All right? It's never been abolished. It still exists for everyone outside of Christ. And that covenant of works is the, means, it's, it's the manner by which we earn our salvation in accordance with keeping God's law perfectly. And this man has come to Jesus, apparently, under that mode. He says, what shall I do to in- inherit eternal life? In the parallel passage, there is a parallel passage in Matthew, and it makes us, if we didn't already know what he was saying, it makes it even more clear. Matthew 19, 16, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have everlasting life? Does that make sense? Good teacher, what good thing might I do to have everlasting life? He's coming, looking for justice. That's the basis on which he comes, and Jesus, who is the great physician, answers him in kind. That is why, if you're wondering, why doesn't he, he simply do, if somebody came to me and asked me, what should I do? I would preach him the gospel. Jesus knows it would do him no good. He hasn't come asking for mercy. He's come asking for, for justice, and he must show him what that looks like first. Well, as I say, then this is our first part, and our our first point is highly qualified, highly qualified. Begins in verse 18, now a certain ruler, we call him the rich young ruler, and part of that identity is supplied by our text, right? He's a ruler. In verse 23, 23 he says he was very rich, extremely rich. And then in the parallel text in Matthew 19, 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. So he had these three things. And I want you to understand that in his own eyes and in the eyes of anyone around him, this man was highly qualified, as as well qualified as you could possibly be to earn salvation. He was rich. Some people lack for resources. This man lacked for nothing. Indeed, it's about time and leisure to do good things and merely to survive. Or if God is impressed by the, the, the depth of your giving to the temple or something like that, then it is certainly better to be rich than poor. What's more, he's young. He's young. He's still at the height of his, his physical strength. He's not been scarred and buffeted by all the various failures and indignities of life as it goes on in age He is unbowed, he is optimistic, he is confident, he is young. And he is a ruler. You know, there are some religions in which slaves are fundamentally disqualified from salvation. That's, for instance, in Hinduism. 
couldn't possibly be saved because they're slaves. They don't have the freedom of action needed to perform the works of religion, all the ceremonies and rites and rituals that are necessary. But this man, he has that freedom of action. He is an authority over others. But beyond that, beyond being a rich, young ruler and qualified in all those ways, beyond that, I would, again, giving this man his due, none of them actually enters into the man's own account as he interacts with Jesus. He doesn't say, well, don't you see I'm rich, young, and ruler? He doesn't say that. He says, rather, it is, he speaks of his moral qualifications. As Jesus answers in verse 20, you know the commandments. And he does. Because he is of the chosen people of God. Not everyone in the world knew the commandments, at least written, have it written on their hearts. But as the word of God revealed, he knows it and he has been well taught in the the law of God. He knew the commandments and what is more, he thinks he's done them. And Jesus quotes to them, to him, most of the second table, the law, we'll speak of that soon. And he says in verse 20, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he says, all of these things. I have kept from my youth. Well, from the perspective of the mode of justice, this young man was as qualified as as they come. If there ever was anyone in the world in a good situation to, to earn salvation, it was surely him. But secondly, he was disqualified. He may have seemed to be as highly qualified as as anyone could be, but yet he was disqualified because it's not enough. It's not enough. Jesus begins precisely by pointing this out. I hope you catch that. In verse 18, you know, when he comes and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now, now, yes, he is certainly checking his, his understanding of who, who he is. Are you coming to me just as some ordinary person, or do you have some recognition that I am, in fact, a God-man? Yes, that's part of it, no doubt. But beyond that, he is already answering the man's question. He is already refuting his false understanding as soon as he says it right up front, saying, there's no one good. There's no one good. There's no one good but God. It's just what what Romans chapter 3 says. There is none good. No, not one. They've all turned aside, even from from birth. You see, that's the problem when you come in justice mode because everyone's a sinner. That's the thing. It's fallen since Adam fell. There is no possibility of keeping the covenant of works. There's none good but God. But, of course, saying that is not enough, he needs to demonstrate that as well. And that's why he then gives him this, these, this, this law, this moral law. He says, you know the commandments. All right, fair enough. I just told you there's none good, but let's, let's, let's now find this out. So let me give you some of the commandments. And he says, all these things I've kept from my youth. If he had kept all the commandments perfectly all of his life as he said, then he would live, actually. But this man has not. This man is obviously deluded, and Jesus has to expose that. By the way, in Romans 3, that is a quote from one of the Psalms. 
Right? This is no new revelation. This man, if he knew the, the word of God as well as he should, should have understood that there is none good. Well, how is he going to do it now? How is this great physician, how is he going to make this man understand that he has not actually kept all of God's commandments every moment of his life? Well, first of all, he intentionally leaves out a couple of things. He leaves out, for instance, the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, which may have been a particular problem for him. And he leaves out the entire first table of the law, right? The one beginning with, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He goes, instead, he focuses on the second table of the law, which is no doubt where he had focused. Because it was in the first table of the law that this man's rebellion was directed. As we see, and as Jesus points out, it wasn't, it wasn't him, wasn't the living God, the triune God of which the God-man was standing before him that was his God, we would know that because he would follow him. It was money that was his God. Money was his God. And he had fundamentally broken the very first, and yes, in various ways, all the rest of God's commandments. Well, there's only one way to make this clear, And that's to give him a choice between these gods and see which one he chooses, right? Okay, so you've done all the commandments. You know the commandments. I'll give you a choice now. All these things I've kept from my youth, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. What do you know? So there is something he can do to inherit eternal life. In fact, the choice is so clear, it is right before him. All he has to do is sell everything he has, distribute to the poor, and come follow Jesus, and he will certainly inherit eternal life. Well, let me say, if God were his God, he would do it. But he doesn't. He couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. Because he didn't love the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was a rebel against this God. And rather, he had made something else, which is money, to be his God. And so he didn't get the answer he was hoping for. The answer rendered as he came in the mode again, the the idea of the calculator. The very different answers you get depending on which mode that calculator is in. Extremely different. He'd come in the mode of justice. And he'd put in all of his numbers. And he had gotten back from the living God, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer, not good enough. Not justified. Not saved. And he walks away, rightly, very sad. Well, we move on then to our second part, which has to do with mercy. And let me just say, as we discuss, this this is the road not taken Thankfully, in the word of God, this is a possibility that is now being discussed of the disciples and the others who heard it. And the Lord Jesus are discussing this possibility. But that's not a possibility that this man at that moment in his life took. Maybe later he did. But our third point is impossible for man. In verse 24, when Jesus saw that he'd become very sorrowful, he said... How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, the illustration he gives of a, a camel going to the eye of a needle, there are some in various commentaries who kind of seek to soften this and give various explanations historically as though it were a, a difficult but very impossible operation. Just take some of the baggage off the camel and that's okay, or simply requires some forethought. But I, I don't in, impose this, but me personally, I take this in a very straightforward manner. Right? How possible is it for a full-grown camel, hump and all, to go through the eye of a needle? And the answer is, it's not possible. It is completely impossible for such a thing to happen. And that is precisely Jesus' point. It's impossible for someone who thinks he's okay to be saved. Impossible. What makes it so hard for men who have every advantage to be saved? The answer is pride. It's spiritual pride. That's the thing. The very thing that this, the tax collector lacked. Wonderfully lacked that spiritual pride. He was willing to press the mercy button as hard as he knew how. To come to God on the basis of sheer grace. And he was saved. The rich young ruler. That, that would never occur to him. He could the thought of pressing that button would disgust him. Even when his sins are pointed out in the clearest and most dramatic way possible, he refuses to bend and he would rather walk away sad than merely ask God for mercy. Now, you, I hope you understand just how humiliating the gospel of grace is to the pride of men. If you don't, you're missing something very important. Jonathan and I were recently discussing this and Thinking about it, because there have been times in which we both thought it, it is merely a matter of understanding. And it's true. I've never met anyone who understands grace who is not already a Christian. All right? There's intellectually, there's something about the nature of grace that, that people simply will not get unless their eyes have been opened by God. But I'll say more than that. It's not merely that they don't understand. It's that they don't like it. To the extent that they understand the gospel of grace, they don't like it. They reject it. That's why it is that seemingly good and nice people that we encounter, we understand when the people who are shaking their fists at God very openly, they don't receive the gospel. We, we understand that. But what about these nice, wonderful people that we encounter that, that seem actually to keep a measure of the second table of the law and even have some reverence for, for religion and whatnot? Why is it that they reject the gospel of grace? The answer is, it's, it is humiliating and and whatever pride that they have in their in their soul reacts violently against it no no it can't be that all of my works are as filthy rags in the sight of god surely there is some part there's some scrap of which i have ownership of my salvation and that's why false forms of Christianity are so popular. That's why Roman Catholicism has prospered all these years and remains prospering in this nation to this day. Because there, grace is mixed with works. And yes, you get to have your fingerprints on salvation. There's something that you have done to earn salvation. And you don't have to be humiliated before God who gives you the charity as if you're a beggar. Brothers and sisters, we need charity because we are beggars. That, that is precisely the mode of mercy in which we come, in which this tax collector came. Indeed, as these helpless babies came, in which we must come. But, you see, that's why salvation is doubly impossible with men. Because, first of all, I, I've already said that all men are sinners. You can't possibly keep 
the, the law of God. They can't earn salvation. But worse than that, even worse than that, you'd say, well, okay, well, great. All they have to do now is press the, the mercy mode, right? That's what you're saying. Well, it's not that simple, is it? Because men are prideful. And some, perhaps more so than others, as Jesus is pointing out, that, that those who have everything in this world and seem to be good and seem to be well qualified, they're even worse in that situation than some others. But they will not. No one will fundamentally come to Christ for mercy in our pride. That's why John 6.44 says, no one can come to me. Hope you understand that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a word that Peter Wench, who's studying Greek, recognizes. We went through it. He says, Uncle Bill, is that, is that the word for, for drag? I said, yes, it is. That's what it means, to drag. Unless the Father drags them. No one can come to Christ unless the Father drags him because in their pride they don't want this gospel of grace. It's impossible with man, but this brings us to our fourth And final point, it is possible with God. Because after all these things, after they'd witnessed these things, they'd seen this man who was the most well-qualified of any of them. And they thought, surely, this man is going to get what he asked for. Those who heard it said, who then can be saved? This is not facetious. They're not being funny. This is their honest reaction. This is the best we've got. And Jesus is saying, there's one thing he lacked, and he's not willing to do that one thing. What, is, what, what about us? Who then can possibly be saved? Because we're all worse than that. Now, as I say, that the way they're asking this just reflects their wrong understanding, as in who then can be saved. They're partially correct understanding about justice, but their total misunderstanding or their total rejection of mercy and the gospel of grace but, you know, on, in, in another sense, when they ask that kind of question, at, at, at finally they're coming a little bit closer to it. Okay, finally they're coming a little bit closer. We should be asking that question. The question is not, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because that is fundamentally impossible. That is doubly impossible. But rather, in light of all this, who then can be saved? In the, the light of the holiness of God, in the light of the perfection of the law, in the light of our own wicked pride, who then can be saved? That's a, now you've got it. Now you've got it. And here's the good news. Verse 27. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. No one can save themselves. And people, yes, maybe even particularly rich and powerful people, will never come to Christ looking for mercy on their own. Too convinced of their own ability, too convinced of their sufficiency, of their goodness, of their resources, of their merit. But even that obstacle, as great and insurmountable as it might be before men, even that obstacle, pride, it can be overcome by an almighty God. That's the thing. No one can come to the Father, but that's not the end of the sentence, unless Father draws him. No one can earn salvation, yet there is a gospel of grace that all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him, asking for mercy, not for justice, but on the basis of all of his perfect good works and on his atoning sacrifice, they will be saved.
And the father does drag some. He drags many. And that's the good news. That which is so completely impossible with man is possible with God. Now, by way of application, I really just want to reiterate these things and put them perhaps in slightly different terms. Let me just start, first of all, with the bad news. So I mentioned the tax collector, he went home justified. The helpless child in arms becomes an example for the way people enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the most highly qualified man imaginable? Well, he went away sad, although I don't know if he was sad enough, if he really understood. So what, what then is crucial in all this? Well, obviously, choosing the mode by which you approach God. I hope that much is clear. That's the crucial thing, the mode by which you approach God, whether in terms of justice or in terms of mercy. And that is why you must know the bad news, right? That's the point of preaching the law. That's the point of preaching justice. That's the point of pointing these things out, because apart from it, all of us will remain just like the rich young ruler, thinking that we're okay. You must hear God's law. You must know not only all ten commandments. It begins not just with your duty before your neighbor, but your duty before God. You have no other gods before me. That you should worship the Lord God as he is directed and not using anything else at all. And you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He'll not hold anyone guiltless who does so. And yes, you should keep the Sabbath day holy. And all the things of the second table of the law, all those things, but yes, not only those in themselves, but the way Jesus explains it in the Sermon of the Mount. You see, that's the thing. When he goes beyond it and says, look, it's not just those who have not murdered, because we all, you know, you, you, you have your neighbors and your friends who say, I, I'm a good person, I haven't killed anybody. And Jesus says, actually, if you've hated your brother without cause, you're a murderer, you have broken that commandment. You've broken the sixth commandment. And, and it's not merely those who have not committed adultery. The problem is even those who have looked lustfully at someone else in their hearts. You've committed adultery in your heart. And so you see the purity of all of the law and you understand it is not just the end actions, it is also your words, those who even curse your brother that you're guilty of murder as well. But even of your heart, what's in your heart, the things that haven't even found expression in your words. And we stand condemned before a holy God. Now that man was deceived, and that's why he walked away sad, because he's unwilling to, to, to come to God for mercy. And I don't want that to happen to you. I want you to be convinced of the thing that this rich young ruler was not, that you're not good. I want you to be convinced of the first thing that he ever said, which is, there is none good except for God. That's what we call, by the way, the second use of the law. The law which brings us to conviction in order that it might bring us to Christ. That there would be conviction of sin so that we know that we have only one option remaining to us and that is to come to God for mercy. Now I would also say among the bad news, we also have to know that, that salvation is fundamentally impossible with man. Right? It's not merely that it's impossible for the rich to be saved with man. It is impossible for anyone to be saved, actually. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that everyone is naturally dead in trespasses and sins. 
That's, again, false forms of Christianity want to soften that. And they, they say, well, actually, everyone is naturally disabled. Everyone is naturally sick. Everyone is naturally a little bit um, uh, impacted for negatively in their ability to go, do good. Yet they're still alive. Maybe they're on, on life support, but they're still alive. But no, no, we're dead. That's what the wall of God says. That's what the, the whole counsel of God declares to us, that everyone is dead in sins and trespasses. Children, do you seem dead? Do you seem dead? Has that occurred to you? That's what the word of God says. That naturally speaking, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And we have to have the eyes of faith to believe that that's true. That spiritually speaking, we are dead. And apart then from the work of supernatural regeneration, which the Holy Spirit makes us to be alive, we would remain in that dead condition. Now, we have to get over then the idea that there are some people who are somehow more qualified for salvation than others. Now, it might even be more difficult for some, as we just heard, for the the rich perhaps. But they're not always the ones that we think are. The point is, rather, that we are all fundamentally disqualified and doubly so. We're not good, we're bad, we're evil. And on our own, none of us would ever come to Christ. We are deaf to the word of God. We are blind to spiritual things, and our hearts are hardened, and we hate God. We can't stand the gospel message naturally, right? The more that natural man hears the the gospel and understands there's not one shred of man whatsoever involved in salvation, the worse, the more he hates it. The bad news is it's impossible. The good news, though, secondly, is that what, what is impossible with man is possible with God, and especially the God of grace. You know, Mark fourteen thirty six has these wonderful words from the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Isn't that good news? This omnipotent God that we have, there are things, so many things that are impossible for weak and sinful man, and the most important, of course, our own salvation, yet all things are possible before God. And God has set his omnipotence on this great object, the redemption of sinners. Helpless, hopeless sinners like you and I, he has has set his great power and wisdom to work to find a way to save us. And I want to say redemption has been accomplished. This thing he, he has set his mind to do, it has been accomplished on the cross. As we were recently reminded at the conference, it is finished, Jesus declares from the cross. It's done. Christ has died, and what is more, he has risen for his people. And even now, this redemption is being applied. There is such a thing called effectual calling. It's what was just saying. The Father does drag some. There is effectual calling. The larger catechism says it's a work of God's almighty power and grace. Both of these things. His almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect, and nothing in them moving them, Thereunto, he doth in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. That's good news. The God of grace can draw you. We want God, when we come, we want God to work the impossible before us. He's shown us the way. It's so simple. 
All we do is come like the tax collector, utterly convinced of our sin and utter inability to save ourselves. And we say, God, have mercy to me, uh, upon me, a sinner. Coming on the basis of sheer grace, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall be saved. That's the good news. Believe it. Thirdly, I couldn't let this pass without mentioning, thirdly and finally, that we should be careful about the things of the world. Now, I've just said that salvation is fundamentally impossible for everyone, but I guess the question is asked, I would ask is, why would you want to make it even harder? Right? And that's what he says about rich people. And the lawfulness of things is not in question. Jesus didn't question the lawfulness of it. It's, the issue is usefulness. The issue is edification. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful for me. All things that are lawful, of course. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, but not all things edify. And young people, this is a distinction you really, really have to understand. You've got to understand the difference between that. Between what is lawful and what is edifying. Okay, because you can almost always, this is a religion of grace. The ceremonial laws in the past you can always make a case to say, but it's, I can do this. Show me a place in the Bible where it forbids it. Okay, maybe I can't. But does that mean that everything then is actually edifying and useful and helpful for you in your spiritual life? The answer is absolutely not. In that category, so there are these things that are fundamentally lawful, unlawful, and then in this big category of things that are lawful, but within that there is a subset of things that are helpful and edifying. And what the Word of God says is that it is a good thing. It is right. It is useful. I think it is essential that we choose the things that are edifying rather than the things that are merely lawful. Okay? We don't impose some new law. We're not like the Pharisees who make some law and impose it on others. But brothers and sisters in wisdom, I counsel you to choose the things that are going to be edifying, are going to help you. Don't make it worse on yourself. So don't seek to be rich. Yes, seek to glorify God in all that you do. As God gives you, gives you your, your strength and health and youth, use it absolutely for the glory of God. Seek to grow spiritually first of all. Yes, if, uh, seek a, a, a profession, a vocation in which you'll use your gifts to the glory of God. Particularly young men, seek to provide for the covenant family which you pray that the Lord would, would grant to you to teach your, to your children and grandchildren. And build up the kingdom of God in that way. But do not seek to be rich. 1 Timothy 6 6 says this. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now let the word of God speak on this. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing. With these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich. Fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Brothers and sisters, if you acquire a love of money or the things that money can buy, this world will forever have its hooks in you, and these things will be a snare and a temptation, perhaps to your destruction. 
do what is edifying. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, how we thank you that you tell us the truth. How we thank the Lord that we are standing now in the clear light of day as the word of God has come to us. And Lord, we begin to see ourselves as we are. Indeed, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work upon us a complete and entire conviction of sin, something we know that comes from you. That, Lord, we would see ourselves as we are and as you see us to be, as you know us to be. That indeed, all, not only of, of the things that we know to be sin, but even all of our righteous acts by which we would come to you and say, Lord, we, this is why we deserve salvation. These things are as filthy rags in your sight. And Lord, may we be fully convinced then that there is none good except God. And that, Lord, rather than coming on the basis of justice, we must come on the basis of mercy. And how we pray that each and every soul here might do so. How we pray, Heavenly Father, that there would be, indeed, the prayer of the tax collector in our hearts. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, Lord, may there be joy in heaven at the repentance of many sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.